Around the year 928 BCE, the United Monarchy of the Twelve Tribes of Israel dissolved. After a century of union, painstakingly sewn together by the charismatic and legendary King David, and dramatically expanded by his brilliant son, Solomon, who built the first temple in Jerusalem, the monarchy disbanded after Solomon's death over irreconcilable economic, political, and religious differences. Ten of the twelve tribes formed a union under a new king in the north of Israel. The southern kingdom, comprised of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, continued under the line of David. Although oftentimes rivals, the peoples of the two kingdoms had a single national consciousness. Their common language and their shared religious and historical identity lasted for another 200 years. The Hebrew prophets moved freely between and preached to both elements and to both communities. By around 722 BCE, the northern kingdom ceased to exist. The mighty Assyrian Empire overwhelmed the small country, killing tens of thousands and exiling most of the rest. In place of the banished Israelites, the Assyrians resettled peoples from their conquered territories. Thus, some 2,700 years ago, the northern kingdom of Israel vanished from the pages of history and from the annals of Jewish civilization. What remained of the people known as the Hebrews were the tiny southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin. There was nothing unusual in the disappearance of the northern kingdom. What happened to it happened to every other nation of antiquity conquered by more powerful foes. They were absorbed into the empire, assimilated, and eventually disappeared. This was the law of the ancient world. The only exception in the entire history of Western civilization is the Jews. Somehow, the weak southern kingdom of Judah survived successive conquests by the ancient world's most powerful empires for another 800 years, until it too succumbed in the year 70 CE to the most powerful empire of them all, the Roman Empire. All of today's Jews are descendants of the southern kingdom of Judah. Yehuda. Thus, we are called Yehudim, Judites. The progenies of the tribe of Judah figured out how to keep their national identity alive even after defeat and exile. We accomplished what no other nation did. By all historical accounts, there should be no Jews in the world. The Judites of the south should have gone the way of the Israelites of the north, disappearing into the mist of lost civilizations.
the faded remnants displayed only in musty museums and dusty digs. The Jewish people is like one big global heritage site. We are the only national living link to the ancient world, a link to be cherished, safeguarded, and preserved by a world so intent on saving indigenous peoples. The disappearance of the northern tribes gave rise to many mysteries and many legends. The fascination grew with each passing century. Many claimed falsely that they were the descendants of the northern kingdom. For two millennia, there were Jews who dreamt of finding these tribes and reuniting them with the remnants of the tribe of Judah. Jewish tradition referred to them as the Ten Tribes, or more recently, the Ten Lost Tribes. Our sages debated whether they were gone forever or simply lost to us, but still carrying on the ancient traditions somewhere, somewhere in the world. Some, like Rabbi Akiva, thought that the tribes would never return. It wasn't as if they decided one day to all go out on a picnic and they forgot their GPS and couldn't find the way back home. They were destroyed, Akiva thought, not lost. They were extinct as all the other nations of antiquity conquered by invading empires. Rabbi Eliezer, on the other hand, relying on the ancient prophecies of restoration, disagreed, insisting that the northern tribes were exiled, not destroyed, and one day they would reappear. There is a fascinating midrash that tries to bridge the differences between these two approaches. The Midrash teaches there were three exiles of the ten tribes. One group was exiled to the Sambation River. The second group was exiled beyond the Sambation River. And the third group was exiled to Rivlata. Those exiled to Rivlata, identified by the sages as Antioch, in northern Syria were swallowed up. The Midrash spells out three levels of being lost to Judaism. The first is exile to the banks of the Sambation River. The Sambation, which was probably a real river when first identified in rabbinic tradition, perhaps the river Gozan mentioned in the Book of Kings in the Bible, that river became known in Jewish lore as a mythical river specifically associated with the Ten Lost Tribes. According to legend, the Sambation is a raging torrent full of boulders and stones thundering with deafening noises day and night that can be heard even a day's journey away. Six days a week, it is entirely impassable. 
Anyone who tried to cross would be swept away instantly. But on the seventh day, Shabbat, the Sambatyon rested. It would become as gentle and tranquil as a placid stream until Shabbat ended, at which point it would become yet again an unpassable torrent. The first group of the Ten Lost Tribes was exiled to the banks of this river, the Sambation River. Six days a week, crossing was impossible. It would have been easy to cross on Shabbat, but according to Jewish law, it is impermissible to cross a river on Shabbat. <laughs> this group of exiles did not disappear. They were not utterly swallowed up. They continued to observe Jewish custom and tradition, especially Shabbat. In fact, it was Shabbat that prevented them from reuniting with the Jewish people. The implication of the Midrash is that one day this group will be found. They're still observing. As foreseen by the prophecies of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and other Hebrew prophets, the second group of the Ten Lost Tribes was exiled beyond the Sambation River. They were not on its banks. They were much further away. They were far more distanced from Jewish observance and hence far less likely to reunite with the Jewish people. Still, they didn't entirely disconnect from Judaism. They could still hear the Sambation River raging within a distance of a full day's walk. This group of exiles was almost gone. They had no connection with Judaism except that they could hear the river. They were still within hearing distance of Judaism. Though much harder to find, this group, too, has not completely vanished. The third group was swallowed up. They were exiled to a place that was completely separated from Jewish observance at all, and they were so distanced from anything Jewish that they couldn't even hear the river of Judaism, they were utterly absorbed into their surroundings. They disappeared entirely from Jewish history. They will never be found because they're not lost. They're extinct, gone forever. What a profound midrash. There are three stages of Jewish exile. Assimilation doesn't happen all at once. It's more like the process of bankruptcy described by Ernest Hemingway. It happens gradually, then suddenly. <laughs> the first stage of exile is still maintaining some kind of observance, something Jewish, perhaps a Passover Seder once in a while or lighting a menorah. Maybe some Jewish foods or Jewish music or Jewish humor and really getting the jokes. These people might still come back. They're not yet gone forever. They may be lost, but they can still be found. The second level of exile is losing even these connections, but still preserving a tenuous link to the Jewish people. These lapsed Jews do not affiliate with any Jewish institution or perform any Jewish ritual, 
but they still hear the distant sounds of Judaism. They may have Jewish friends who have some level of observance. Perhaps they have patients or clients who are observant. They may discover an ancestor who escaped the Spanish Inquisition or the Holocaust, reawakening long-suppressed memories and curiosities. There are faint Jewish echoes that keep ringing in their ears throughout their entire lives. They don't even know why. Not frequently, not powerfully, but often enough to remind them of their Jewish ancestry or to pique their interest. It's much harder to find them, but they too are, not, are lost, not extinct. They are not yet swallowed up. Whenever I meet a person who never knew their parents were Jewish, I meet quite a few of them. They may have survived the Holocaust or suppressed their Jewish identity for other reasons. And when I meet even practicing Catholics who tell me that they always felt Jewish, they couldn't really understand why, they couldn't explain it. And when they discovered that one of their ancestors was Jewish, an escapee from the Spanish Inquisition all those centuries ago, my response to them is always the same. Welcome home, if you want. Come learn about yourself and rejoin the descendants of the tribe of Judah. The third level of assimilation is permanent. It's a kind of exile that is so removed from anything Jewish for so long, for so many generations, that separation from Judaism is permanent. The common denominator of all three groups is their separation from the Jewish people. For some, like the ten tribes, their exile is coerced. Judaism was squeezed out of the Jews of the Soviet Union by the coercive power of the Soviet state. Many eventually assimilated and vanished. They are lost forever to the Jewish people. For others, exile is self-imposed. They make a conscious decision that Judaism is simply not important to them, or more frequently, they just drift away from our people, decade after decade, until three generations later, there is no return. As Franz Kafka wrote about his own family, Judaism dribbled away while they thought they were passing it on. I worry about American Jews. I always have. But since the pandemic struck, my concerns have intensified. We are entering the third year of enforced separation. We hardly see you, and you hardly see us. We know you're there, and we know that some of you are working hard to sustain Jewish connections. It's actually a marvel to behold. Jews who never studied 
anything Jewish, never attended a worship setting in person, never connected with any Jewish institution, now listen to daily Torah podcasts. Spend time online with knowledgeable rabbis and teachers or join virtual groups of mourners, seekers, or learners. These are enormously positive developments. One computer click and all of Judaism, the entire gamut of Jewish institutions become instantly accessible to anyone and everyone. Had the pandemic struck 15 years ago, before social media and streaming technology, our exile from one another would have been much more severe. Too early to draw the conclusions about the long-haul effects of the pandemic on the health of the Jewish community, but we already know that there has been a quantum leap in innovative virtual programming. These changes are permanent. There is no going back. We aren't going back either. In years to come, our synagogue will expand our online offerings and upgrade our technology to reach the widest possible Jewish population. So why worry? First, that's what rabbis do. We worry. You pay us to worry. I worry about you all the time. I feel such enormous responsibility for you. You called me to service here. It consumes me. I feel such deep affection, not only for so many of you individually, but for our community. There is reason to be concerned. Like many crises, the pandemic has not only created new challenges and not only exposed pre-existing challenges, it has accelerated long-term trends already in place. An unsustainable number of American Jews were already choosing voluntary separation even before the pandemic. COVID-19 merely hastened their exile. I worry that the very accessibility of Judaism diminishes the proximity of Judaism. I worry that we will be unable to sustain a strong, vital, and lively Jewish community. Community is what kept Judaism alive through the millennia. After all, if you can get anything you want online at any time, and it's all free of charge. Many Jews, I fear, will ask themselves why they need the real community at all. So much of our lives nowadays are lived online anyway. So much of we, what we purchase and consume, friendships are online, even work is online. So why not Judaism? Now, I know that so many of you, those of you who are watching us now, I know that many of you are desperate to come back here. I know that. I've spoken with you. 
I feel it. And I know that as soon as you feel it is safe to come back, you will come back. All of us are trying to heal from this enormous brokenness everywhere we look in every part of our lives, in every part of New York, in every part of society, something is broken. But I worry that most Jews will not intensify their Jewish identity during these years, but the opposite will allow their Jewish muscles to atrophy, lulled into a false sense that virtual communities can replace real communities. I worry that American Jews will become browser Jews, <laughs> surfer Jews, lazy boy Jews, lazy Jewish boys and girls, women, and men accessing Judaism while reclining in their sweats. And a bottle of wine would be nice as well. Perhaps flicking channels between the barahu and the baseball. <laughs> you can multitask to your heart's desire. You don't have to work at being Jewish. You don't have to actually see people. You can turn off your camera. Just make sure, especially you older folks, that the camera's really off. You know, people have gotten into trouble because of that. <laughs> we hope that by now, we would have begun a full recovery. Alas, we will need to hold on for at least another year. Know that these are Jewishly dangerous times for you and your family. Work hard on your Jewish identity or it'll dribble away. It will happen gradually at first, then suddenly. It is not enough to plunk yourselves in front of a screen and watch. To observe a thing is not the thing itself. Do Jewish things. Recite the Shema with your children and your grandchildren before they go to sleep. Observe Shabbat at home. Light the candles with your children. We know that something as simple as, and as basic as lighting Shabbat candles has a powerful long-term effect on Jewish identity. We know that home observance is the single greatest influence on the Jewish identity of our children. Read Jewish books. Here's a novel idea. Study Torah. Torah is for adults, you know. Access one of the thousands of classes now online, including our synagogue's offerings, and then discuss it with your family. Let your children see you open a page of the Bible. Why should they see you only reading legal briefs? or quarterly prophet reports? Why not the reports of the prophets? <laughs> the great texts of our people that inspired the great texts of so many other peoples. Most of all, love Judaism. What we have loved, others will love, wrote Wordsworth, and we will teach them how.
And when we are done with this pandemic, return to the synagogue. Do not take anything for granted, not the miracle of the Jewish survival of the descendants of this tiny tribe of Judah, not your Jewish identity, and not the synagogue. Do not take for granted that Judaism will simply appear on your screen, that it will always be there. You must cherish and fund Jewish institutions if you want them to survive. All of us, including those of you who are viewing us online now, respond to our president's appeal in the coming moments and make this the historic, most prolific result of a president's address in the history of Stephen Wise. And we'll be counting. Without Jewish institutions, there is no Jewish community. And without Jewish community, there is no Judaism. We have so much to offer our world. We never think about it. We're too busy critiquing ourselves. This small, weak, Middle Eastern tribe of Judah drew the map that led to the West. We were the first to insist that human life is sacred, that the individual is endowed with divine dignity and has an indisputable claim over the collective. Every person containing the spark of the divine has equal merit and equal worth in the sight of God. The king, the president, the leader has no greater moral standing than the homeless on the street. Rich, poor, educated, illiterate, great, meek, all equal morally. By the 18th century, these Jewish principles had become so rooted in Western thought that it was self-evident that all were created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We gave the Western world its understanding of liberty. Everyone deserves freedom, and we must fight to defeat the taskmaster and the oppressor. Granted free will by our creator, each of us is responsible for ourselves and accountable one to the other. We gave the world the principle of social responsibility. We gave the world the sense of justice, the principle of equality before the law. We gave the world a belief in peace that individuals and collectives do not need to be in a perpetual death struggle for supremacy. Tranquility, serenity, and prosperity are within our reach if we only extend our grasp. We gave the world the institution of one day a week of rest. Human beings are not cogs in a wheel of endless and exploitive 
productivity. Everyone deserves rest. Not only the king, not only the CEO or the manager, but the worker on the assembly line. We gave the world the principle of repentance and forgiveness. Everyone makes mistakes. Everyone harbors regrets. Individual and collective relationships are impossible without making room for authentic atonement. We encouraged logical thinking, reason, science, evidence. We promoted subtlety and intellectual rigor. We endorsed the value of education for all. Jewish tradition is the repository of the deepest wisdom and the most profound search for meaning to plumb the mysteries of existence and discover purpose in life. Judaism has something to say about every moment of your life. Your joys, sorrows, challenges, frustrations, successes, failures, ambitions, satisfactions, loves, and temptations. This is your heritage, handed down to you from the mists of antiquity by the small tribe of Judah and improbably sustained generation after generation until finally placed in your lap. Why in the world would any Jew want to go into exile? And where would they go? There is no more exquisite oasis than what we already have. Those of you who are packing your bags or have already reached the banks of the Sambation, your exile is not permanent. As long as you can still hear the roaring river of Judaism, it's not too late. If you want to be found, we will find you. Lost, found, and reunited with the remnants of the tribe of Judah. Rivers capture a prominent space in Jewish tradition. To reach the promised land, the people of Israel had to cross the Jordan River. We read in the Talmud of Rabbi Zira, who went up to the land of Israel and reached the Jordan at the very embankment where the Israelites crossed into the promised land millennia before. Rather than wait for a ferry to allow him to cross, the rabbi grasped a rope that stretched across the river like a bridge, and he crossed the river himself. When he reached the other side, a certain stranger sneered at him, you Jews, you hasty people, you're always clinging to your hastiness. Rabbi Zero responded, I stand at the place where Moses and Aaron were forbidden to cross. Who can assure me that I should be worthy of crossing into the promised land? So I must make haste, lest something to happen to me. 
before I complete my journey. Don't wait. It's later than you think. Make haste. Cross the Sambation. Return from exile. Rejoin the remnants of Judah. Come home.